Wanderings is back. You got Ron Rapitalo here, your host. And I couldn't have season one without one of my BFFs as a guest. My homeboy, brother from another mother, native New Yorker, living out in the Bay Area now, Christian Simamora. Chris for me, fam, is the epitome of just all things good and reflective and meditative and gets a lot of shit done. This episode, aptly titled Living and Learning at the Intersections, starts out a little bit with Chris's origin story being the product of a Indonesian and Puerto Rican marriage happened in Coney Island. So it's a fun story and it uh, provides the foundation of the beginning of his life and how he started seeing and navigating the world. So this is be a real treat, y'all. Listen and enjoy. Welcome, everyone. We got another Ronderings episode on the mic, and we got my true, true 30 years we've known each other, maybe? V25, brother from another mother, Christian Simamora. We met at NYU when he was a freshman at the dorm I was a resident assistant with. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but let's just say the moment that we had dinner together occurring in a hurry, I knew this motherfucker was going to be fam for life. Fast forward, families together. He's the godfather to my oldest daughter, Sophia. We spent so much time together. And now he's a guest on my damn podcast. This is, this is, <laughs> this is just fucking bananas. So Chris, welcome, bro. Thank you, man. That's very kind of you. We have known each other for 25 years, almost exactly. And um, man, time really goes. We got we to gotta appreciate every second because uh, we're old now, man. We've reached that thing where like when you fill out the surveys, you know, the 45 to 54, you, we now have to check off that box. I, I can tell you that the students that I teach do not think I'm cool at, in any way. <laughs> they sometimes think I'm wise. They're like, oh, he's old. Maybe he knows things, but I'm not cool. In any way. Mm. Damn, when did when did that leave? Like I still think I'm cool, but I just know that I'm really corny. But I think I've always <laughs> been corny. But like when did it stop? Like when you were teaching your students, like when you stopped being cool. You were just never cool. It was all in our heads. Uh you know, that's true. It, it could have just been a self-delusion. And <laughs> and that delusion has now been pierced, and I just have to accept the truth. And that's okay. Yeah. That's all right. The youth will tell you things. They are unfiltered to you these days. My God. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, I want to chop it up by every episode. I always ask my guests this question to start it off. What's your story? Mm. So, I think the most appropriate place to start my story is actually going really way back and thinking about my parents. So, like my story, the seeds for my story are both the seeds of struggle the seeds of hope and optimism, mm. uh, the seeds of vision. Because so my mom, I mean, and you know my parents very well, but for those people listening, my mom, Elsa, is an immigrant from Puerto Rico. And my dad, Julianos, is an immigrant from Indonesia. They met in Coney Island while online waiting to ride the cyclone. I love this story. That's <laughs> so fucking New York. <laughs> it's so cool because... Uh, my dad apparently, well, my dad was a merchant Marine. And so apparently he had enough facility with Spanish to kick it to my mom in Spanish. And as my mom tells it, and uh, for all of you folks out there, forgive my mom, her, her awareness of racial diversity at the time was quite limited, right? So she came from a country background. So she was like, es este chino que me habla en español? Like, who is this Chinese <laughs> guy that's talking to me in Spanish? And she was, she was very taken with, with him and his affection and his, his attention. He was really taken with her. I don't know if you know this, but they had a three-month courtship before they married. That's it. Three months. I do remember they, they got married with the quickness. They, kinda, they just knew, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. And he had the long flowing hair back in the day. I still see the yeah. photo right by his staircase, man. I'm like, yo, his hair was longer than, than your mom's. That's <laughs> bananas, man. This is how... It's a good reminder that we all change and evolve because he was wearing the long hair, the, the sort of the mustache, the Kung Fu villain mustache. He had the bell-bottom jeans. Yeah. And he's really different now. He's super church, you know, with the button down and, and you know. Yeah. But they met. And, and that was really the beginning of my story and my sister's story. This sense of like, not only of, of possibility, but also of being risk takers. 
because they left their homelands to come here, but they also stepped out of their cultures to find love. And I think it's fair to say without getting into details, both sides of the family were disoriented by that. They weren't necessarily supporters of what was happening. And so my mom and my dad were taking two risks. They were, they were the risk, they were taking the risk of being immigrants, but they were also taking the risk of being in an interracial marriage in the late seventies. So, you know, I, I think that that has a lot to do with my story because so much of what I have embodied as I've grown up in, in New York and now living in Cali is living at the intersections, right? So like, I'm not really fully Indonesian or Puerto Rican, but I am. I have these two parents who speak these really different languages, and oftentimes I was the bridge between them. And so living at the intersections and having those seeds of struggle and optimism and, and vision are all a part of, of the beginning of my story. So I would say that that's, that's the very beginning. First of all, I'm nowhere and I'm nothing without them. The suffering and the sacrifices that they've gone through, you know from your own folks and your own family. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't match, but I can honor. I can't match them but I can honor those sacrifices. So yeah, that's my origin story. I was uh, born in Indo-Rican in pre-hipster, pre-gentrification Brooklyn. <laughs> I go back when I think about all the times I would eat at your home. <laughs> that, that, that living in the intersection, there, there's no better way. If, if I were to give our audience a way of like seeing it, I think, of, think about the Noche Buenas, bro. Yeah. I'm going to paint a picture. The folks are going to get jealous and then they're going to be like, when is Ron Rings going to have a food podcast? I'm like, hold on, hold on, horse. people, <laughs> one thing at a time. You can fund it. Let's talk. The beef rendang your dad would do, right? Mm-hmm. Indonesian culture, the shrimp salad, right? And then oftentimes as we got older, he'd also pull, oh, he would get this from like one of your Indonesian friends, right? The bottle blue label. Because <laughs> remember, we, there were many in Noche Buena, like we got lit. <laughs> Dude, so it's yeah. He would also bl- he would also bring the plum wine, and he would yes, he would bring the yes. blue label. That's right, that's right. And then your mom would make the very traditional Puerto Rican noche buena meal, mm-hmm. pernil, the arroz con gandules, right? Um, pasteles, fam, mm-hmm. rounderings audience. If you have not had pasteles, <laughs> you don't know Puerto Ricans. <laughs> Right? Yeah, and then of course your mom would hook it up with the butelo, and make the cafe con leche. To like, mm-hmm. and then all the cakes and pies we had. I, I think I literally gained no less than fifteen pounds. Eating <laughs> with y'all the holidays, man. Yeah, so no. those those were the days, man. So I paint that picture living in the intersections. What was it like mm-hmm. growing up, Simamora, living at the intersections? Actually, I think the imagery of that table is a great illustration because really that table was a coming together of two cultures, but they, don't, they didn't always complement each other. So there were certain dishes on the table that if you ate together, surprisingly, were actually better than either dish by themselves. So I would argue that arroz mm. con gandules with some good randang on the side, yo, like, yes! like what? Like, seriously, <laughs> really, really amazing flavor. So much love in that food, but not everything went together. So, you know, there were other dishes on the table um, that wouldn't have gone together. And I think that that's actually part of the struggle that my parents had was they jumped into love, but not fully aware of the differences and not equipped because of all the suffering and struggle they had to go through to even begin to like deal and turn towards that difference. So much of what my sister, and I don't want to speak for her, but I, I, I would imagine that it's this, some similarities. A lot of what we learned is to actually question what we're being told, because they had sometimes very myopic views of the culture of the other, partially because they had like resent, personal resentments, but they were expressed in cultural critiques. Right. So I learned to question, like, is that really true? Because anytime that my father criticized my mom or vice versa, in essence, they were criticizing me because they were both in me. And so I, I learned really quick to, mm. to question that, to interrogate for myself, to begin creating my own narratives. I mean, this is where Indorican was born, right? So like yeah, my sister and I were like, what are we? Because that's America's obsession. What are you? Where are you from? You're so exotic. Yeah. So my sister and I were like, yo, let's claim that. 
Let's not be reactive. What are we? We tried Puerto Rican. It didn't really have the right thing. I'm glad so, y'all didn't pick that because I don't think that right. would have stayed as a good hashtag label on Instagram or other places. So, <laughs> so we went with Indorican, and um, okay. that was our attempt to honor both roots while at the same time trying to figure out who we were because we were not going to be them, right? Just by definition, we had both of them in us. So we had that, that Christmas Eve table, that Noche Buena table you described. Mm-hmm. We were something new, but we were still in, you know, in, in formation. So we were trying to figure it out as we went. And frankly, I'm still trying to figure it out. But that's what it was like growing up in Memora. I mean, it was lots of love, lots of nourishment, lots of food. They worked their asses off to get us to where we are right now. I, I, again, like we really don't have anything without them, but there was a fair amount of strife, conflicts, and, and things that I think they would regret knowing they had said to each other in front of us about each other's mm. people and cultures. So, yeah, mm. mixed bag. Yeah, man. There's something really interesting, Chris, that you said about your family. So I want to, I want to, I want to bring your mom and your dad a little bit more to the forefront. Like, Talk a little bit about what they did and like what their interactions were for the audience. Because I think mm. that that'll help paint a picture that then will dovetail back to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think particularly for any of you listening who, who come from, from two cultures, right? You may relate to this. So both of them as immigrants, as newcomers to the country, so much of their like engagement in life was thinking about how to survive. So my dad founded a grocery store with, man, my other, our other brother, David's yeah. father, <laughs> who, who just passed. So may he, may he rest in peace. And they co-founded a grocery store in downtown Brooklyn, right where the Barclays Center is. So for a long time, they ran this store that was the grocery store to go to in downtown Brooklyn. Now to give people a sense of what that generated for us, that one store allowed both families to purchase property and to send their kids to Catholic school. So we're talking about, this is a major business enterprise that three people, because my mom was a part of it, she was an investor, three people founded without very much. So, so much of their interactions were actually organized by the rhythms of work. My dad and David's dad worked six days a week, 12 to 14 hour days for the entirety of the stores like being open. And how long was the store open for, Chris? Oof. When did we close it? 2003? So like, I mean, 25, 30 years. Wow. Long, long time. Damn. And, you know, the economics back then were different. So my mom was able to be home and she took on the labor of home. So she handled the bills. She took care of maintenance. You know, she cooked, she cleaned, she took care of us when we were sick. And then when they bought property and had rental spaces, then they also took care of that. But mostly that, that fell on my mom's shoulder because of my dad working. And so um, not only did they have the challenges of like trying to get to know each other and these different cultures and expectations, but they also didn't have a lot of time because uh. you're tired. You're working all the time. So they were very, very hardworking people and they did it all for us. Yeah, the immense love that they demonstrated over those years is, is pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty immense. Yeah. What lessons have you taken from the love of your parents that you impart today? You can interpret that whatever way that you want, whether it's your students, it's your own families, your friends, but take those lessons today. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I really, there's a framework that I think is really beautiful. And we often think of ourselves as separate entities from our parents. And that can be useful sometimes. But if you pan the camera back, Ron, like you're actually a link in this long chain. Yep. So everyone that came before you is in you. And because they're in you, they pass on things that are both helpful and generative, but they also pass on things that are things they haven't healed. And so I think actually one of the most interesting gifts that my parents gave me is the ability to confront conflict because they were not able to. And when I finally got into a relationship where I was like ready to settle down and marry, the only way to actually do that was to turn towards that unhealed space and to actually learn how to confront conflict. So it's interesting because in a way they taught me a lesson they didn't mean to teach me, 
And it's also a lesson I may not have learned, right? Because they probably learned from their ancestors how to engage with conflict in a way that wasn't always so generative. And because they gave me so much privilege, I had the space to reflect and then to be like, okay, I don't want to be this way in my relationship. What do I need to do? And it it was all the things, asking for what I need, sharing my feelings, feeling my feelings and not being afraid as a man to feel them. So in one way, that's like a, a lesson, an indirect lesson. A direct lesson was the immense importance of devotion. So they worked that hard, yes, for survival, but they also worked that hard because they were so devoted to their kids and to Mm. family. Mm. And that's how I try to be with my sons. So much of fatherhood for me is about how do I use my energies in a way that shows my son's love, that brings the best of the ancestors down to them, but that also has me confront the question, what is it that I have to heal so I don't pass it on to them? Like they're going to have their own stuff to deal with because nothing is perfect, right? There's no perfect chain, but I can do my part to, to like be aware of what is, what it is that I have to heal so that I don't pass it on to them. You know, like one of those things is anger. My parents in retrospect, now I realize are super angry all the damn time because they were tired and overworked, right? And under lots of strain. And it's been interesting, Ron, to see how anger surfaces for me with the boys. Sometimes even I'm like, where the hell is that coming? Why am I so upset? You know? Yeah. And it's because it's the energy that I, I carry in me that I got to work with. So their example of devotion um, is something I really try to live uh, today with the boys. So I would say those are two big lessons for me. Wow. That's so powerful, man. I mean, there's so many ways that can go with this, right? But I think taking what you said, right, around anger, and parenting, right? It's something that, I mean, the missus and I talk about all the time about raising our girls, right? There are things around either of them in terms of parenting and things that we get triggered by that really has to do more with us than what they are doing in the moment, right? And so one thing we're dealing with with our our baby girl, Ava, is just like, you know, she's still learning how to express herself better, right? I think her ability to be verbal you know, she struggles to articulate it sometimes. And I think that mm-hmm. manifests in when she doesn't able to articulate what she wants, she cries. And the crying is just a trigger for both Chini and I for a number of reasons, right? From our childhood and the way that we saw we dealt with it, like I avoided. Shanita tends to more confront, like, whoa, like, why are you doing? And so it just becomes one of these, like, wait a second. You know, God bless what we've learned as life lessons over the years and the people we've had in our lives to step back and say, wait, that's not really helping the situation. And how do you then do better? And like, I catch myself like trying to be more this in terms of my tone with Ava as a result of just saying, if I let the emotions flood in me and in terms of the energy she's giving me, then it's going it, to, it, it, it hits something and it's just like a then flip. It's just when I... Mm-hmm come with a certain level of like the devotion to Ava and to Sophia comes from, I want to be better than the way that my parents parented me, but my parents only parented me based on what they knew best how to do. And that level of, I think you and I have talked about this, right? There's a level of healing that you have to do about that, right? Based on how we grew up. I remember the very Funny story. I, I always think of this one story. Every time I watch Sesame Street, you know where I'm going here, Cookie Monster. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I won't say the full story, but every time I think of Cookie Monster, I think of the story of you and your mom, and you pretend to be Cookie Monster. Your mom was quite upset if you tried to be Cookie Monster. And yes, like was. at times, a lot of our pa- like our parents, did, they beat it out of us to not do that again, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what they knew how to do. My mom beat things. I, I will not read without a light. Because it was literally beat out of me. <laughs> You know, and so I'm curious, like around this idea of dealing with that anger, like, what are you still healing with? Is it that or there other things you're still healing with? And not only for parenting, but from what you got from your parents. Yeah. So I really, I want to give lots and lots and lots of credit to Plum Village, which is a Buddhist Zen community and to Thich Nhat Hanh. I feel like his teachings have helped illuminate a lot here for me. Okay. I would say the first thing is, um, being a father has been the biggest instrument in helping me to have compassion for my parents. 
Because now that I'm going through all the hard stuff, I'm like, oh my God, what was I being so critical about? Like, and I have it so much Word. easier than them. And here I, I can't even deal with the kids being home for a day. I'm like, so Word, right? first, compassion, because I never knew how hard it was. And now I do. And that has taught me never to judge anyone unless I've been in their shoes. And even then I shouldn't judge. But I would say something that's been very, very helpful from the Plum Village tradition is this idea of habit energy. So habit energy can come from two places. You can create it because you do something over and over and it becomes a habit. And then you do it mindlessly. And you need to bring your own awareness back to it if you want to change it or if it's not helpful to you in some way. But we also have the habit energies of our ancestors. Real quick example of that is I was trained because that's how my mom was trained and my dad were trained to be on time. And so if anything was almost late, lots of, there was lots of conflicts, lots of chaos, lots of anxiety. And one of the things I've had to really temper with my boys is I, I ride them when they're not moving fast enough. I think I've gotten much better over the last year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. But I can still feel the energy surface in my body when there's a, a, an appointment, like let's be at school by this time, or we have to get to a doctor's appointment. Like super calm, easeful Chris, like I don't know where he goes, but it in enters this really tense, like, listen, we, we got to go. We, we got to go. And everything is shorter. My emotions are more on a string. And so the first step is just to notice this is what's happening not only out there in the world, but in my body. And you can ask yourself, is this how I want to be? Is this, is this helping? You know, another way to t- think about it, and Jack Cornfield, I love this question, and I got it from him is, you know, what, what would love have me do today in this moment? And in this moment, you can say, well, I, the kids are doing fine. Developmentally, they don't know what the clock is. So maybe I need to slow my roll. And tomorrow, I need to be the one to get them started early because really it's my fault that I didn't get them up in time, you know? So this notion of habit energies, of having enough awareness, cultivating awareness, then realize what is it that's not working. And then to think about, okay, well, what little change do I want to make so I can be who I want to be, which is a much more loving and caring and patient. Ask my boys, I'm not always so patient, a much more patient father. And it's a process. (laughs) And hopefully I'm healing that for my parents, right? So that's a habit energy from them I don't want. The habit energy of hard work, yes. The habit energy of like rush, I want to let go of that. It served them. It does. It's not serving me in my context. It's so powerful that you talk about that, right? Because I think about one of my favorite books that in the secular space has hit really big over the last two years, James Clear's Atomic Habits. I mm-hmm. And I didn't know about these Buddhist teachings of habit energy, but from a deeply spiritual side of which you and I have a lot in common, both raised Roman Catholic, we can riff on that in a little bit here and like how we've moved away from it for a lot of different reasons, right? There is something that like, not only energetically gets into you from the people who've been closest to you in your lineage, but also would argue that gets encoded in your DNA for the folks who don't believe in spirit and all those things, right? There are things in your in your DNA that like, get passed on at some level, right? Your environment does shape those things too, right? But there's something really fascinating about just being able to be aware of the things that are gonna allow you to be best and being able to make sure, if I'm using James Clear's language for a second here, what the cue is, what you're then going to do. And then he talks about then a reward, right? And so I'd imagine like probably a lot of what you do around like learning to be more patient is like, what then feels good when I then do that? Oh, the boys don't then trip out. Okay. In some ways that's the, hopefully the inherent reward of said behavior, right? Because you see that's like, oh, wait a second. That's a better way to be because when I act short, then it exacerbates said situation. Then they flip, <laughs> right? Who wants that energy, right? Unless you just want to keep like banging your head against the wall over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, Chris, let's fast forward to today. Like, what are you, what are you up to these days? What's, what's Chris Simmore doing? And that's not meant to be just a work question, right? This is all encompassing. This is what's Chris up to. Yeah. No, I appreciate that, that framing because like for me, like what takes so much of my energy and time is being a father, is fatherhood. It's one of the few things in life I knew I wanted to do and be and experience. 
And, yeah. and here I am doing it. And yeah. it's very, very hard for all you parents out there. Like there might be some head nodding, but I don't think I fully understood how difficult and challenging it would be. And then in more recent times with all of the things going on in the world, both at scale around the pandemic and the, the shootings everywhere and, you know, just minor things like kids get sick and sometimes they need to go to the ER. It's been really, really challenging. So fatherhood is, is number one. Mm. But number two, and I've been super privileged to be able to do this, is I am a fellow at the Life Design Lab at Stanford. And so I'm a lecturer. I teach. I design experiences for undergraduates, graduate students, higher ed professionals, corporate professionals. And the Designing Your Life topic essentially is how do we, how might you grow into the life that you might want or need at any stage in life? And the way we do that is by using the skills and the mindsets that a designer might bring to trying to create a, a new and innovative, innovative product. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of overlap between that and designing for one's life because uncertainty, yeah. ambiguity, having more than one right answer are a part of both spaces. So mm. like if we just met a level, I'm a learning experience designer and facilitator, and I really kind of love what I do because when people are trying to design their lives, they get vulnerable, they get open, you see the things they love. It's a very generative space. So that's like the other part of what I do. And then I, I moan and groan that I have time for nothing else. Ask Jamie. I, I lots of complaining about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like um, we've talked about just in getting having known you over the years, right? Brazilian jiu-jitsu has been a love, but I, I, it sounds like I know that you haven't been able to get into it as much for health reasons, right? You haven't, or is it time? Or is it both? Like where where are you with that these days? Because I know that's been something you love. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so my passion for Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, someone predicted this. Uh, my stepfather-in-law said, hey, just so you know, once the baby's born, you're not going to have time like you used to. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? It's going to uh, be fine. Yeah. And so, of course, silly me, not listening to the wiser advice. I have not been on the mats to train since Pax was born. So it was 2016. Some of that has been health-driven. Uh, I've had mm -hmm. a number of health issues. But a lot of that has just been like, my God, is it? It's relentless, like fatherhood. And I think fatherhood amplified by a pandemic and everything that brought, that it brought. And my mother in law passed. I think all of those things swirled. So I've been on this sort of relentless roller coaster ride that I'm super grateful for. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not practicing jujitsu at the moment. I feel closer to it. I'm trying to get packs to get on the mats with me. Uh, but it's, it's, it's latent right now. Yeah, that would be a good way. You and I have talked via text about my adult beginner swimming journey. Mm. And the honest truth is why I'm sticking to it, right? I actually have the lesson tomorrow, right? Is because I'm doing it with the girls. It's a family outing. So missing it means I miss time with the family, which on the weekends is something I just don't want to miss, right? That's our time to really like, you know, be together after what's generally a busy week for all of us, right? You know what it's like. You and Jay are hustling bosses so Shanita and I and it's like the weekend oh let's go do some stuff together because pre-pandemic I was doing the lessons of my own and once life hit and work hit in a different way the momentum stopped and I didn't have a deep enough habit energy ah you like that right to be able to maintain <laughs> it right because it just became uh I'm not progressing to say oh, I missed the week oh I'm sore for my workout it's like Look, I did my powerlifting meet today. Do I really want to take a swimming lesson tomorrow? Not really, but will I? Because I'm thirsty to learn. Yeah. And you think about what that habit energy can do. Like, I just want to take that concept and see how that goes into how you use it as a fellow in your life design lab and, and, and working with your students, right? There seems to be something really powerful for anyone to unlock in life. Like, you figured that out. There's not really a lot you can't do. It doesn't mean you do it at some like whatever level you want. That's a different story about the result. But like learning something for me fundamentally becomes around setting up the right habit systems in your life. And when you, I, I, I'm curious how like you merge that world of from your Buddhist practice, but also your lived experience. Sounds like your parents probably had a lot of it in ways they may not have articulated the way you are are doing in your current instructing as a learning 
experiential designer. Did I say that right? I probably butchered that name. No, designer, okay. experiential learner. <laughs> my, my title is lecturer and fellow at the Stanford Life Design Lab. But um, like the craft that I do is learning experience design. So I think your question is like, how does the concept of habit energies play across the different domains that I'm a part yes. of? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the way that it most lives across those, those domains is through the concept of practice. So one of the reasons why I've been so drawn to Buddhism is because, so I grew up in a Christian context and funny enough, Ron, and there may not be space here to talk about it, but we should connect. I'm being drawn back to the contemplative traditions, the mystic traditions of Christianity. But that's for like, yes, yeah. for another time. I mean, you'll obviously be a guest again on this. I just hope you know, right? We, we <laughs> chop it up and have some other version of this. So, but keep going. And so, um, but one of the reasons why I have felt a lot of resonance with this tradition is because in Buddhism, it isn't like you, you should be compassionate. It's like, hey, to ease suffering, it's probably a good thing to be compassionate. Now, here are all the things you should do to cultivate compassion inside of you and in your life. It's all a practice. You're, you're not being compassionate. In many ways, you're doing compassion. How am I projecting compassion? How am I behaving in a compassionate way? And it's like a constant return to the craft. I want to be more loving. What are the specific practices I am doing to be more loving every single day? And that really resonates with me because like you, I love to learn. And whenever you're practicing, you're not expecting perfection. And so by implicit means, you're always thinking about that space of learning. How might I love more fully? How might I be more present more fully? What are the things I should be doing to be able to do those things more fully in my life, especially under duress? Like it's super easy to be present and loving when things are going well. But what about that tough conversation, that tragedy, that moment of, of anger, how are you expressing love there? If you haven't practiced, you're just going to re revert back to your habit energies, whatever that is. That also plays out in how I think about de designing your life. Like Part of what I believe we do with our students is we help them practice how to notice, how to define something they want to work on, how to ideate effectively, how to generate lots of ideas about how to work on that thing. And then how to pick one of those things to prototype. This is all the design process. And then how to think about what they've learned from the thing they tried. It's just all a practice. And you can apply that to anything. Better mm -hmm. relationships, how to design better energy in my week, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then with fatherhood, is there a more sacred practice than caring for another? Whether it's caring for an aging parent, being a dad, being a partner, but even that's a practice, like every day, if I'm not reflecting on what it was like to be a dad, and oftentimes it's reflecting on like, oh, I wish I would have handled that better. Then I just come back the next day and I haven't changed. And I'm just being the same person for them. And sometimes that's okay. But oftentimes it's, that's, uh, there are things that I'd like to do differently for them because I, I believe them to be more loving. So it's a practice. I yeah. literally have a reflective practice on my fatherhood. And so I think that's the connective tissue between all the parts of my life is it's a practice that I'm engaged in because I think it has some, some meaning to it, you know? Yeah. Chris, you've always like of the many, 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 many people in my life, you've always been one of the most reflective, contemplative people that I know. Mm. Like you're always, even if I go back to 1996, Chris, right? Which is different, Chris. That's for another day, another episode. It's like 1996, Chris, and 1996, Ron. Oh, <laughs> God. The things Cringe. I would want to shake in 1996, Cringe. Ron. Like, goodness gracious, 1996, Ron. What are you thinking and doing? I want to tie this to what you're doing with your students, right? Mm -hmm. What life are you designing in real time right now for yourself? And what are the contemplative practices you're working on that, you know, align to that life that you're currently designing in real time? Yeah. So you're going to have me nerd out for a second. So I know this, <laughs> this would be a seven hour episode. I have to chop this up. <laughs> like, uh, why is this 3 a.m.? We still chop? What's going on? <laughs> I, I will, I will try my best to be concise. My students would say that is not my strength, but, um, when it comes to practices, so Part of what I want to do is orient my life around uh, a statement that I heard Jack Cornfield share, which honestly, man, like I think really transformed my life. 
So he says, the purpose of life is not to perfect yourself. The purpose of life is to perfect your love. Now, if you let that sit for a second and you're like, you get past the like, oh, it kind of sounds like a hallmark kind of epitaph, right? Really what it's saying is like, if you orient your entire life on how to make yourself better and it's all self-centered, that's a life, but it, there are limits to that. But if you orient your life on how to express love so that you are living in a loving way around you, all of a sudden it's other-centered. Everything around you is like, how am I a better friend, a better godfather, a better father, a better partner, a better coworker, right? Because there's love in that space too. So I try to orient my practices around that. So like in the morning I wake up and I have a, a, a poem I recite, which is around gratitude. I wake up this morning and I smile. I have 24 brand new hours ahead of me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to see all beings including myself, through the eyes of compassion. And then I do a sitting meditation. Uh, it's from a Buddhist tradition. There's all, all types of meditation. And then I try to get at least 10 minutes of sitting. And then at the end of the sit, I recite the five remembrances. May I remember that I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape aging. May I remember that I am of the nature to grow sick. I cannot escape ill health. May I remember that I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death, and I do not know when it will visit me. Everyone I love and everything that I hold dear are bound to change. I cannot escape being separated from them. My actions are my only possessions. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. They are the ground upon which I stand. And I recite that because it's a reminder to me that my abuela was once here and now she's not that my beloved mother-in-law was once here and now she's not. That if I think I'm going to be here forever, I'm deluded and I'm like actually like doing my kids a disservice. So how do I want to be today knowing that the only thing I'm going to take with me is what I do, what I think, what I say. And I try to have that orient the rest of my day. And when I'm, when I'm, when I'm in my best self, when I'm resourced, I do that. I walk through my day. I mess up all the time, but I'm values aligned. And, you know, sometimes my practice isn't there and I can feel it. I'm a less present, loving person. And that's my signal. Like, no, 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 that's not how I want to be. And then, you know, I have some other practices. Like, you know, I have a kettlebell practice. Yeah. But my, my kettlebell practice is like a mindfulness movement practice. It's very technical. It's about continual improvement. So those are the main cornerstones of my day. I love what you said around how you start off your morning. There's a part of me that says, Chris, I want you to follow up and, you know, write that down for our readers so I can send it when I have this as part of our, you know, when we put your podcast on blast, right? Because there's something around, I, I, I talk about this a lot with people, right? Is that, and I want to say everyone subscribes to this. It's getting a little Tim Ferriss. Remember before we recorded, I was talking about like, fact that ironically i don't listen to a lot of podcasts but one of the few podcasts i had listened to was tim ferris when he did tools of titans mm. is morning routine i mean if there's someone that i think probably obsesses around asking his guests around morning routine it's him and so what you were talking about was a little like the beginning of your morning routine right and how that you have this level of control over like i'm putting in words in your mouth right but they just said control you everywhere that day because nothing's coming at you other than you're with yourself right and it allows you to be devoted in the way and loving in the way that you want to be even if you are imperfect that day right but there's progress that you make over the totality of you doing it rather than being sometimes you're imperfect in an hour or a day or maybe even a week but the totality of it all you continue to progress and get better. So I just want to zoom out about that because I think that's such a powerful thing that the intent of how you start your day is as important as what you do during your day. If you do things mindlessly during your day, and you don't know what you want to set out during your day. There's so much that's really not in our control, but you have control over that snippet of the morning for you to like ground yourself. So I just wanted to say that that was really powerful and something like I was doing a lot of like nodding and like, wow. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, 
life is short. Like here we are, mid forties to late forties, right? So we don't have a lot of time to like be who we want to be in the world. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of traditions. If you're if you're Muslim, if you're Christian, so many traditions have these morning rituals. Uh, and if you don't have a tradition, you can just create one for yourself. Yeah. So as a part of your story, I want to elevate for our readers, right? Where, you know, I remember Chris in college, right? <laughs> Hard worker, big GPA, involved in all these things. Person I interviewed before this, right? actually was a Goldman Sachs equities, equities trader. I was like, you know, it's really funny, ah. Tina. I'm interviewing my homeboy who was an undergraduate summer intern and only worked 60 to 70 hours, right? That's light, right? Mm -hmm. And then you went from there to Teach for America to be a core member and taught in the South Bronx, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, I think it was Bart, like, I fucking memorized your resume. And yes, people, I, I memorized people's like experiences. This is why my, I, I work where I work, right? Then I think it ended up being Bardoli Global for a minute. So you still stayed in like the ed world and then you worked at CARE for a number of years. So you still stayed in social impact and there was code 2040, right? Mm -hmm. Where you ended mm -hmm. up being a senior leader. And then I think you you shifted into then working at Stanford after code 24. You've been there ever since, right? And so paint a picture for us of the, arc of your your work experience and how that informed you designing your life whether intentionally or unintentionally yeah so i think i've had a very varied sort of uh non-linear career part of that is because i think being first gen i didn't have a real blueprint or a framework for what it meant to think about career mm. and that's that's just real yeah i might have done th things differently not knowing what i know but given what I knew, I was just trying to figure out the next best thing that felt values aligned. And um, I think the connective tissue actually for me, which is only really visible in retrospect, is in so many of my pieces of work, I was focused on community building and creating spaces where people could be a little bit more human, could have mm -hmm. the space to reflect, be vulnerable, and connect with each other. So, you know... I think that connective tissue started off super strong as a teacher because that's what you do as a teacher. Teaching is a sacred act. You're in that classroom and all of those lives are in your care, but you can't fix anything or save anyone, right? You're just like trying to create the conditions for students to realize who they already are. And to do that, you need a space that's loving, that's vulnerable, that's compassionate. And then I kind of wavered a little bit in my career and I, I tried different things, which I think I tell my students all the time to really explore. And then I landed in Cali and I was at Dalai Lama Fellows, which is an organization that was seeking right. to reimagine leadership through the lens of compassion, ethics, and mindfulness. And we partnered with his office, the office of his holiness, the Dalai Lama, to launch that program. And really since then, that, that through line has been really big and crystal clear. Like, this mm -hmm. is what I do you know, in partnership with all of my great colleagues, right? It has been like, how do we co-create spaces with people where they can really dig, dig in and explore and think about who they are, what their humanity is, and how they can express that in the world in a way that's generative and positive. So Dalai Lama Fellows and Mindful Leadership, right? Co-2040, how do we launch Black and Latinx technologists into a space that isn't ready, doesn't want to accept who they are as people, not let alone as technologists? How do we prepare them for that? What are the learning experiences that will create, will fortify them to be able to, to weather that storm? When we're at designing your life, you can't really design a life if you can't reflect, be vulnerable, and connect with other human beings. So that's the through line for me. And so I've been very, very fortunate that I do what I do. And I would say that if you're 25 and 30 and you're curious about how you figure that out, for me, it's been in retrospect, and it's by asking the question, what is the connective tissue between all these different things I've done? If you sit with it enough, usually some patterns will emerge, and that was the pattern for me. And so whatever I do next, I intend to extend that, that through line. It may take a different expression, yeah. but I don't think I'll ever deviate from, from that work. Man. I can't wait, Chris, to hear what you end up creating, because I know when you and I have talked, right? While it's 
incredibly powerful the work you do at Stanford as a lecturer and a and a fellow. Like in my spirit, I've always known this is just another step to to Chris's path. I just I'll, I'll name something like, and I, I'd love for you to like riff on what I'm about to say. Right. So one of the things mm-hmm. I often think about is you probably have heard me say this is what you intend you manifest. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've realized in the last decade plus when I've been more conscious of it, that when I've done that, just about everything has come true. It's really uncanny and crazy. Right. And one of the things I put out my, that I put out my intention was this podcast was me writing my book, which is coming out in a little bit, right? Get, getting to see the final copy at the end of the month. I'm going to go read it, maybe make some edits and then figure out how to get the book is called self-plug shameless leverage in parentheses, the people who love and care about you personally, professionally building a circle of champions. Mm. Check it out when it's out in the ether. But mm. I mean, this, this idea of being able to name what you want in life and not knowing how to get there. So I'm going to name mine. And I'd be curious if you have one. So one of the things I put out when I went through the journey of like writing my book, right, was seeing myself selling out Madison Square Garden because we're a mm. long-suffering Knicks fan. I am going to ask you about that because I have to like, it wouldn't be a podcast with Ron and Chris if I ask you about the fucking Knicks. So mm. we go, we go talk, we go chop it up a little bit about that. Not a full episode. We're going to open right? that wound right. up. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, I got my um, uh, Neospora for that. But um, selling out Madison Square Garden and speaking to the whole crowd about something. Maybe it's mm. the Rondering's podcast is on full tilt or part of my book tour, right? And the life that I would want to design for myself is one where my family travels the world. Being mm-hmm. in different places, doing where I work. For me, it's public speaking, coaching, inspiring do very similar to you this is why we boys right you know i think if i would have told 1996 ron nerdy pre-med neuroscience ron you're going to be someone who facilitates spaces and is really vulnerable like are you smoking something what kind of (laughs) shit that don't make no fucking money that's dumb where's the money in that let me tell you something there is some money in it for what i've learned right and it's not Mm -hmm. about the money right sure but this trip like selling out madison square garden traveling the world with my family, living purpose and doing things that we love and being able to experience the totality and beauty of our world, eating good food, experiencing martial arts and sports in those places, and then having that paid for, whether we're on a Netflix show or something else, or someone like bankrolls that to pay us because we're such a, like, that's, you know, it's really crazy me saying that. I, I feel it. Like, I just know it's going to happen. But, you know, I honestly have no idea how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you this, I know it will. So for you, Chris, what do you tell our Ronderings audience? What's the life for 10 years from now, five, like, what are you designing for? What, what is it? Like, name that into existence for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the one, the one thing that I haven't fully claimed for myself and that I think I need to so that my parent, my, my, not my parents. Well, actually, okay, maybe that was a, an interesting Freudian slip so that my parents can claim it and so my sons can claim it is, you know, for a long time, I've been a low-key writer. So I've done a bunch of writing workshops, different formats, different genres. You know, uh, I have a blog, which has not much in it for a while because of fatherhood. But, you know, one of the things that really touched me was I went, I once went to were you there? Hold up. Let, let's see. I was okay. at Central Park 2004, 2005. I was watching Juno Diaz speak about what it means to be a writer. Okay. And he said something that was very, very powerful. You know, he, he spoke about literature and writing as one of the most powerful vehicles for compassion. And mm. that always stuck with me. And, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I love to write. And I want people to read my writing. I'm not the kind of writer who's like, oh, no one ever reads it. It'll be fine. No, no. Like, I want people to read what I write. Yeah. And I had this, in, this interesting experience in 2018 when a friend of mine, she read one of my articles and she texted me and said, hey, what you wrote made me cry. Uh, it really touched me. It's making me think about how I want to be as a mom. And that's when I realized, like, so me not writing is, is kind of foolish because I want to be in conversation with those folks 
because I have something to offer and they likely have something to offer me. But by not mm. writing and not publishing, I'm keeping that conversation from happening. Mm. I'm also modeling for my sons on the, on the down low, hey, you have a gift, hide it, don't, don't do anything with it. So until I really express that in the world and claim it, you know, my kids may pick up the wrong lesson from me and I'm actually cutting myself off from conversations that might be really life affirming. So, you know, if one day like Ron, if I'm on NPR being interviewed or like the New York Times book review, I'm not going to be mad. If MacArthur is like, hey, sir, we'd like to give you the MacArthur Genius Award. I'm not going to be mad. But really, all I want to like, I just want to write, have people read my writing and for us to be in these conversations that really transform our mutual lives. That's in the next yeah. 10 years, that's the yeah. aspiration. I wonder if there's a space for you for what you do at Stanford to make those two worlds blend. You're in the perfect space, higher ed, to find time to write. I mean, damn, isn't that what they have y'all doing? You know, Don't say that out loud. My boss is trying to find a way to keep me there. And Kathy, if you're listening, I'm not coming. This is the last year, <laughs> Kathy. So, I, I am a career coach <laughs> by nature. So this is what I do is try to have people do like what they're, because I feel there's an energy there, like, and we should chop it up because I know we're going to be, you know, chopping up um, later with, with packs and doing some, some personal stuff a little bit later. But for me, there's, there's so much energy and like what I've known about you when I think about college NYU, Chris, and the depth of your writing, it reminds me, I mean, although he's not doing it, but I went to in Stuyvesant, my buddy Mark Lee, I mean, he's now like mm. a pediatric, like, surgeon for something, right? He's like super, wow. like, like you, horribly brilliant. It's like obnoxiously <laughs> brilliant. And his writing was always so detailed and so flourishing. Like, that sounds like, Chris, from everything I've always known about your being. Mm. Mm. I think. Thank you, I, I will put it out here on Ron's audience, like, like you heard it here first. When this motherfucker gets his MacArthur Fellow Genius Award, you gonna know, oh shit, he did a podcast <laughs> with fucking Ron Rapitalo. Now that Ron Rapitalo is on shit, he got his own Netflix show. He's chopping up with Oprah and other people. You fucking heard it right here. Look at that shit twisted. People are like, oh my God, how did you how did you design your life, Ron and Chris? Well, I'm like, we put it on, blast. We just we just found the energy of the universe and wrote it. Right. And I, I may add, in some ways, we owe it to our parents, right? Because yeah, man. their sacrifices are our responsibility. Like, if we don't take advantage of everything we have in front of us, what did they sacrifice everything for? It makes me think back when I was working at an investment bank in my late 20s. I had what I called the midlife, not midlife, because I was not. 50s or 40s then, my quarter life crisis, right? And the question I asked myself was, what legacy do I want to continue that my parents gave me by sacrificing coming to this country and raising seven of us, right? Mm -hmm. There is something really powerful about that as like taking that ancestral wisdom and that habit energy from your ancestors, right? And continue to shape it and make it your own when we're in our bodies here on earth. So I just wanted to name that, right? Because I think when people don't think about those things, like oftentimes, and it's no judgment, it could be for worse, it could be for better, it just is. Folks who teach us a lot of lessons are the folks who raised us. And they're not always biological parents, but some adults, somebody taught you some things, right? And so what do you take mm -hmm. from that legacy and energy and turn that into something now, mm -hmm. right? So what a shift it. I'll talk Knicks, man. I know you in the Bay. Y'all got Golden State. And look, <laughs> if if I was living in the Bay as long as you were, I would probably be rocking Golden State Warriors gear. I cannot by trade, even though there's stuff to represent Filipinos is quite dope. And they've almost bought it is actually coming, right? Because the Golden Gate, Philippi I was like, uh, uh, don't spend $80 on that sweatshirt. <laughs> don't do that. Because, you know, I think there's this like rule for like, Sports fans, at least I have one, I will name it. You don't buy merch of a competing team unless mm -hmm. that person's retired or dead. Like, <laughs> I just, you know, but 
Knicks, man. So many of our memories, Chris, come from watching the Knicks together. ESPN Sports Zone at your home, at our, at our apartment when we lived together. MSG. So both, both of them, like, right? And going at like, what's going on with our Knicks, man? Here's the thing, man. I'm just going to say this real quick. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so it's interesting because technically one team shouldn't influence the team that comes after it. They're separate teams, except to bring it full circle, you know, you have this notion of habit energy and organizations have it. And that's why you can swap out 100% of personnel in a space. You bring on brand new people. Somehow you're doing all the same shit. And I think that's what's happened with the Knicks as a franchise, as an organization. It's, they just, it's the habit energy of mediocrity, man. Like, cause we came close. Back in the 90s, we came real close and we couldn't get over the against hump. the Rockets. Even that oh, 2000 man. series when we had no businesses in eight seed and the Spurs, you know, walloped us. But like that run was fun. That was the famous, I don't know if it was that series that, remember when you and I went buck wild on the Allen Houston runner? That oh, one, so, I guess. Was, <laughs> so a little inside baseball for all the listeners. You were at my house. <laughs> my parents were hosting a barbecue. We had a bunch of friends over from Weinstein, like Pierre. Yeah. Was there. It, was like, oh, it was crazy. Yeah. Tony was yeah. there. Yeah. And we were actually not watching. And then somebody came and said, hey, it's close. And we ran to the TV. And it was an amazing shot. Yeah. I think you and I must have punched the air for like five minutes straight. <laughs> it was been, a, and I think everyone wrongfully judged us for how loud and obnoxious we were being was like but you don't understand like this is sport this is this is what being a knicks fan as native new yorkers is like so yeah yeah yeah, that habit energy is real man if you just think about the stuff that pervades that franchise because it's like the 70s and like mid 80s knicks shifted all of a sudden and i mean i go back and hopefully i don't get any lawyers to sue me but i put two Mm -hmm. words James Dolan. If you're a Knicks mm-hmm. fan, you understand what I mean? That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Because Brunson is nice. Randall's making the all-star game. I think Barrett still has a lot of potential. He's just a little bit inconsistent right now. I feel like we're at least another player away. But the Brunson trade, bro, I don't know if you've been following the stats of the Knicks, but Brunson's stats, mm. ooh, like one of our better point guards in Knicks history. In the last 20 wow. years, man, he's dropped like, look at his stats. When you see, him, I'm just like, how is he the last number of games dropping like 25, 30, sometimes 35 points of like eight dimes, like five, like five, six rebounds. I mean, just like running it. Wow. But as you know, in the modern NBA, that's not enough to have a really good, like you need yeah. the game changing player. Every team that's going to be really competitive, the Grizz, the Warriors, the Bucks, the Celtics, right? You got your game-changing player. You need at least one. The thing with the Knicks right now is the the, the harsh truth. We don't have a game-changing player. Mm -hmm. Not yet. Mm -hmm. Could Randall be that? Maybe. He's not in that conversation. That's not Brunson. Like, you know, like, you know, from you and I, it's like whether it's on the mats, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, folks do kettlebell training with you, right? Watch it. Like, you know, when you see it, you go, Oh, you're just operating differently than the rest of us. <laughs> like you just know. That's the, yeah. My eye test with the Knicks. He's like, there's nobody like that. Well, that's the thing, you know. To really, because it's a bounded game, right? It has set rules. You know what's going to happen. It's very predictable. The way you flourish in that environment is you just gotta you gotta be obsessively practicing all the time. Mm-hmm. The the culture has to be one of precision. And, you know, I, I try to tell my son, Pax, who's obsessed with the Warriors, obsessed with Steph Curry. A little bit. Like, <laughs> you don't, yo, homie, real quick, by the way, like, he, yeah. he's putting moves on kids in fourth and fifth grade right now. Bro, I know. Please show me this on video. So I, I just, this is the kind of stuff that, like, be, make me a just, really proud uncle be like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I got to send you some videos. And it's interesting. It's all, like, osmosis. He's, he's in official basketball camp right now. but. Yeah. A lot of what he brought into it was all osmosis. He just watches so many videos. All the footage must be seeping into his consciousness. Um, yeah, they think what, about like, yeah, folks who are really obsessive about a sport I've generally seen are compulsive addicts to watching tape. CP, like you, there's a litany of folks like that. You don't watch a lot of tape. You don't get to that level. Yeah. So it, it's, I don't even think it's osmosis. I just think it's like, 
turning that habit energy of like mm-hmm. watching this stuff and being able to translate it into the moves on the court. So that's dope. Mm-hmm. That's working out for Pax. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, I, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to help him understand he's going to learn on his own. It's like the way that stuff became so great a shooter is because he did a lot of the tedious mundane things that are really just honestly mind numbingly boring. Mm-hmm. And you do them over and over and over. And I don't, I don't need Pax to do that stuff. That's up to him if he wants to opt into that life because it is kind of a very constrained existence. But if he wants it, that's actually what it takes. And like, are the players in the Knicks currently? Is leadership currently? Is the coaching staff currently in the Knicks? Do they have that mindset of like real devotion to winning? I don't think so. Bro, I don't I know think the devotion is considering how expensive the garden is and mm-hmm. it is a dollar dollar bill, y'all. Yeah. This is bottom line. Look, look, and yes, the NBA, they about making money, but like, I think the successful teams, you could do both. Mm-hmm. But and one would argue success will bring the money, right? If you, yeah. if you make it to the finals, but anyway. So Chris, I got to wrap up our conversation with the question I ask of all guests to end. What's mm-hmm. your rondering? What's the story? What's the lesson you want to impart to the audience? Mm-hmm. You know, I think what I'll leave the audience with is a lesson I'm trying to understand better every single day and practice mm-hmm. every single day, which is how am I perfecting my love in the world? Like, how, mm-hmm. what would love have me do? And am I doing those things? And I think our children, our children's children, our planet right now really needs us to start thinking beyond just ourselves and thinking more broadly, more systemically. Mm. But even if we don't want to think from that vantage point, just asking that question every day, for me at least, gives me a different energy in my body that feels feels hopeful, feels good. So I might offer that as a practice to to your audience members, you know, how are you perfecting your love today? What what would love have you do today? And if that's a question you ask yourself at the beginning of every day and you try to orient yourself around that, I think, I think good things will happen. It's not easy, but that's my practice at least. And that's what I'll leave the audience with. That is beautiful, Chris. It's funny on my, one of my calendar reminders, which I am so imperfect that <laughs> is it comes up every morning around eight or 9 a.m. No, 9 a.m. And it says, what are you doing better for Shanita and the girls? Oh, oh, I love now, I'm, I'm terribly imperfect at it. And the missus will rightfully call me out. You know, Ron, I see that calendar reminder this week. <laughs> you have not been like, and then I turn it like, why, why I melt like, you know, the Warner Brothers cards, like, damn, she right. She's, mm. but I wrote that as like this reminder to, I mean, your words and, you know, the, the, the gentleman who the, the quote comes from, right. To perfect love. Right. Because I think when you do that, like, if you think about you didn't say it like this, but habit energy is just really a way for us to take compassion and love and put that into being, right? When we do that and not just focus on ourselves, but focus on others too, there's really yeah. not a lot you can't do. Like I, I, I just, I think you and I are testaments to that, right? Is that mm. there's really a not that you, there's, there's not a lot you can't create when you mm. focus on that habit energy and that compassion and that love. Mm-hmm. So, ooh, Chris, man, I mean, this is like an hour plus in. I, I have like seven other out, but like, you know, trying to keep to like the the, the episode length of ronderings for the season. And so <laughs> no, no. I, I, I got to stop this because I know you and I can chop it up for a long time. But thank you, Chris, for being a guest on this. Folks should know not only is he a wonderful father, brilliant human being, someone that, that that coaches and believes in people deeply, but he's my brother from another mother. So Chris, thank mm. you for being on The Ronderings. Thank you, man. And my mom says, dile hola al Filipino. So there you go, bro. <laughs> my mom says, what's up? Thank you for having me on. Well, I might have to, Shanita and I, the family might not. Oh, we were just in the neighborhood. Oh, you, you cooked? <laughs> sure, we'll come in. <laughs> we'll have to do that. All right, Rodrings audience, peace out. Wow, 
What a way to end an episode by focusing on how you perfect your love today. I don't think we say that enough to each other, to ourselves. This idea of, of love, loving ourselves, loving each other better, being actionable on love in, in our daily lives. And I think Chris's rondering for us is something that I had started putting in, in my own calendar and incredibly imperfect that how I can be better for my wife and my daughters. And I'm sitting with that rondering because it's something I know if I get better at, I will leave the legacy that I want to leave in this world. So thank you, Chris, for your gifts to the Rotherings audience. Check out more episodes coming. Peace, fam.